from the journeys of belonging to blackness. blackness. I'm India Lorik Wilmot. Nobody else can do this job. You're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Joining us today is Dr. Kanitra Brooks. Kanitra is the Audrey and John Leslie Endowed Chair in Literary Studies in the Department of English at Michigan State University. She also spent the 2018-2019 academic year as the Advancing Equity Through Research Fellow at the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research at Harvard University, where she worked on the project called The Conjure Woman's Garden, Black Women's Rootworking Traditions. Kanitra's public scholarship specializes in the study of Black women, genre fiction, and popular culture. She is the author of three books. The first, Searching for Sycorax, Black Women's Hauntings of Contemporary Horror, which is a critical treatment of Black women in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The second, Sycorax's Daughters, an edited volume of short horror fiction written by Black women. And third, The Lemonade Reader, which is a collection of essays on Beyonce's 2016 audiovisual project, Lemonade. Kanitra designed and taught the first ever college course dedicated to Beyonce's album, which received local, national, and international press coverage. She is also the co-editor of the New Suns book series at Ohio State University Press. Most recently, you may have read her weekly blog series on HBO's Lovecraft Country, published on TheRoot.com, where she provided points and analysis of each episode and the ways they contended with contemporary art, pop culture, and critical race frameworks in the context of Black lives and horror narratives. I am sure you are as excited as I am to learn more about Kenitra's current projects too. Welcome, Kenitra. Thank you for having me. It's a joy to be here. I've been following you and your work for some time now. I've been intrigued by your public scholarship and the ways you use your platform to engage audiences critically, but most importantly, you're engaging audiences on issues related to Blackness in a very accessible way. So yeah. I'm eager to learn about your journey. So are you ready? I am ready. Right about now. <laughs> Act one, call to adventure. So, Kanitra, as a writer and public scholar, there are paths we take and processes we engage in to get us to where we are today. How did you become interested in doing the work you do today? My family is an influence in everything that I do. On my mom's side, I come from a family of K through 12 educators. My mom was a principal. My grandfather was a principal. My grandmother was a teacher. Uncle was a para. And so being enmeshed in New Orleans public school system, as well as on my dad's side, I get a lot of the genre, the horror films, the stories, the comic books, all of those things. And I always say that I'm a second generation blurred. My dad taught himself to read by reading comic books. He needed something that would keep his interest. He would go dumpster diving because he grew up very poor. And so he would wait until they tore off the covers of the comic books and threw them away. And so it's so weird because my dad will have read comic books and like really famous ones like, ooh, number eight from Spider-Man, etc. But he doesn't recognize it because he never saw the covers. And what would you say you got from both of your parents? Broad-based knowledge that I got from both parents that included a love of reading, just joining both of those forces together. I'm a natural-born 
teacher. I knew I wanted to teach, but also I knew I couldn't work a nine to five. <laughs> it's just not my blessing. I also knew I couldn't be like a drug dealer's girlfriend because I'm not ride or die. And <laughs> I got to work out something to do. <laughs> You're hilarious. But in all seriousness, you had models around you. One of my college professors, Dr. Sherry Holm, she came in at 11 and left at three. And I was like, what job is that? I could do that job right there. And of course, I didn't know about all the other BS she was dealing with, faculty meetings, and that she's writing her own stuff and teaching students and everything else. If I could do those hours, I can work it out. And so I became a college professor. And herein lies the irony, because we work longer hours as college professors. I work even more hours than a nine to five, but if I can get it done in my pajamas or my yoga pants, I'm fine. I also knew I wanted to travel a lot and all over the world, but I didn't want to pay for it. These are all very practical decisions. <laughs> I have a lot of diva tendencies and I'm just like, but I don't want to finance my own lifestyle and I can't be a sugar baby. So how can I make this work for me? <laughs> you are so much fun. I find interesting how you started off by talking about your parents in education. And then on your maternal side, you talked about people who were educators. And then on your father's side, despite his family's limitations of access to education, there was still much value placed on being a learned person. And then the model teacher steered you into academia thinking the hours were going to be short and the lifestyle would be far more flexible than actually in reality what you're seeing and experiencing. Did you ever feel duped or that you're in the wrong profession? I don't mind being wholly encompassed by my job. I often am. You know, in academia, it's very hard to turn it off because at a certain point, all your friends are and you're always working and I love it. It's not always the healthiest and I'm trying to learn a lot more about balance, but I love the freedom that academia gives me, even with the rigors that it requires, you know, but I like the ability to play. I always call it puttering. Give an example. I love the adventure that academia allows me. You know, suddenly I'm in Cuba in a ceremony and I'm like, how the hell is I run up here? And I think your experience is quite different from perhaps even other professors. And I do really like how you framed it as you also like to play. And I took a really weird journey here. Okay, so tell us about your educational journey. So I have a master's in international public health. I focus on reproductive health counseling. And so I learned Spanish by living in Mexico and doing uh, reproductive health counseling with the women, helping you choose the best birth control method for you. I worked in a free clinic in New Orleans. I didn't know you spoke Spanish. You know, it sounds like you really spent time out in the world before landing in academia. And this was something that was very important to you. Why did you need to spend time in the community? Because I wanted to be able to help Black women practically before I moved into the theory of it. I also I also have my PhD in comparative literature, which is a really classic old school degree. It's cultural studies with languages, but it's really, really old and white. Well, those are two very different degrees. So how did you find a way to combine those two together? I got that degree because I knew I was going to do something unconventional. And I wanted the degree to be able to convince folks like, oh, I'll be this quote unquote regular African-Americanist who will come over and Caribbeanist, all these things. Then they see what my work is going to be. And they're like, wow, this is not what we expected at all. Indeed. So your play is very much strategic. I was very deliberate in what I chose to do and how I chose to go about it. 
I appreciate you working beyond the margins because oftentimes we're boxed in, particularly as African descended women. This is the role you're supposed to play. This is the work you're supposed to engage in. And it seems to me that for you even early on to study international health and women's health specifically, African descended or even black and brown women in general, what prompted you to even pursue that? Because that's very specific. I thought I wanted to be an OBGYN and I went to Xavier, which is the number one school for getting Blacks into medical school, right? I was a biology pre-med major and I hated it. And I also recognized I didn't want to be a doctor. I learned that nurses do a lot and the public health counseling and people have the most contact with the actual patients. I was very much about providing agency to Black women. You know, I always say a Black woman can't write her grand novel or book if she can't control her fertility in specific ways. You need to be able to give women freedom to decide. If they want to have multiples of children, great. And if they don't, good, let's provide them with the tools for it. I think that sort of agency is just fundamental and it's the basis of every other thing we choose to do. And I see those themes carry over even in your books because your books explore both African descended folklore from a Black womanist lens and celebrate agency, Black voice, personhood, yeah. and even storytelling. Because I can imagine when you're in the clinic or in spaces where there's direct contact, you're hearing mm-hmm. the ways in which women are negotiating their mm-hmm. inter and intrapersonal relationships, navigating spaces with family members, work, what have you. Also, simultaneously decentralizing the white male gaze. You know, I was a horror fan. And the best way to piss me off and get me to do something is tell me Black women don't do it. But of course we have great horror writers like Tanana Reeve Du, Eden Royce, who I can only imagine being in their place where having to take their horror genre fiction to a white agent or predominantly white publishing house as a Black woman. What a mess. What would you even say? I love horror. I'm a horror fan. And, you know, I'm interested in Black women writers of horror and whatever. And they were like, Black women don't do horror. I was like, oh, excuse me? It was like, here go these two books. Sycorax and Sycorax's Daughters, your compilation of Black women horror writers in the book Sycorax's Daughters is so important to show and put forth and say that these writers exist and they have a voice. And not only that, they have good stories to tell. It's not that we don't do it. It's that you haven't found it yet. And we're doing it in ways that you can't read. Absolutely. So just because you don't know about it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. So how does your work highlight the significance of Black women's voices? A lot of the work that I do overall is highlighting how Black women are illegible to so many people and revealing some of that legibility, but not all of it because some stuff needs to stay illegible. (laughs) Right. Some things stay private, stay sacred. You know, we got to keep our business, our business. But of just saying, it's not that this doesn't exist. You just can't read it. It's right here in your face. Some of the code switching that happens naturally, even the ways that we engage with others and and code switching beyond the fact that people make choices around the vernacular that they choose to use, but code switching in the ways in which they choose to engage in some levels of conformity is part of self-protection and self-care. Yeah. And also, you know, my privilege in being able to be different. Sure. And it seems like your background has given you the ability to move through a lot of different spaces. 
My parents and grandparents gave me a lot of those privileges while also the practicalities of don't get too big for your britches, of remembering where you come from, of you one generation from the ghetto. And there were very specific things that my parents would do, really, to make sure that we never thought we were better than anyone, but also to provide us different opportunities. Give an example. I'm the first one to get a PhD in my family. My grandfather's favorite thing was like, when are you going to get a job? (laughs) He's like, when does the actual job come along? And my grandfather went to his grave without seeing me with like a real job. He was supportive of your vision, though. He gave me money so I could have this freedom to do it. So what was the lesson in that? Always holding those things in tension and remembering the blessings that I have, being aware of that privilege. I like to think about how there's this mystical thing about New Orleans in particular, maybe perhaps extending it a little bit broader to the state of Louisiana. There must be so many different influences while you were growing up that motivated you to tell these particular types of stories, because it's no mistake that you're focusing on horror. Surrealism, storytelling, and mystery and that there was something about being in the space of New Orleans. I always say New Orleans is the city of the dead. Interesting, the city of the dead. Can you elaborate a little bit more? What do you mean by that? The past just weighs down there and it's not cloying or heavy. We recognize that we're different. We recognize the influence of enslaved folks. We recognize the horrors that went down there. I think in a ways that many other cities do not. Does this consciousness run through your entire family? My mother's side, we've always had this relationship with the dead, people being able to talk to the dead, see the dead, hear the dead, smell the dead, etc. My family was also one of the founding families of our church. We were very Christian, missionary Baptist, but it was also like, oh, I saw your auntie last night and you've been dead for five years. You know, the complexity of what's going on there, I just always found that so interesting. Some folks in my family would accept their gifts and some would reject their gifts. And how do you reconcile your own? own spiritual gifts with your family history. I'm a practitioner of Afro-Cuban Lukumi. I had to work to develop my family skills with the dead. While some folks in my family, they don't need help. (laughs) It's just there. They see them. Right. And not only to be able to reconcile that spirituality, but then also to integrate it into your own work. That's just a really interesting place for me to go. My new project on Conjure Feminism is looking at the complexity of Black women and their spiritual practices and how these were good upstanding Christian Black women who also were doing things that were clearly influenced by traditional African religious practices. From my limited understanding about Louisiana, when it was established, French influence, presence of African descended people, people coming up from the Caribbean that were free Black people. You had Black people who were free there. And then you also have enslaved Africans or African descended folks there. And it's just mixed up. And Louisiana, it looked very different to me in terms of my own understanding historically than when you compared it to neighboring states. It's not that surprising to think that when you have this kind of mixing of cultures, Creoles and French whites and all these other people coming together, there's a lot of spirituality because the French were very spiritual as well too and engaged in other kinds of practices. For you, you're like, well, that's also a place where it's of the dead. 
just the very ground you walk on has power. And I think I didn't really appreciate until I left and things just weren't naturally there. It feels different. Right. And that the people of New Orleans understand that. And that there's an open acceptance of it. Like my family talks to dad. People are like, oh, okay, yeah, my family does this. You know, let's keep it moving. And I talk more freely about it now in non-New Orleans spaces. Notwithstanding, I'm sure there's comfort in being able to talk about these things. This was a place of healing for me. How do you think spirituality comports with the ways in which we think about mental health? Because oftentimes when you talk about spirits, people say you must be crazy. I believe it's around, what, 2012, 2013, I had a mental breakdown. I had a nervous breakdown. I was locked in a very nice facility. When they closed that door, you realize that you can't leave if you wanted to. Who put you in there or did you admit yourself? I went of my own free will, but I was just like, I need some time. And it was then that my grandmother had passed and she came to me. She cussed a lot. She was like, you fucking up. Too many people have sacrificed too much for you to be here. And she told me, get your shit together and get in touch with me. Wow. And that was a clear conversation. Grandma gave you the business, but she also set you on a path to improve you and to help you too. And that's how I began this spiritual journey here. Lukumi allows me to establish a bovida, a tradition of ancestor veneration and worship. And how has it helped you on your journey thus far? You know, it's holding these tensions and acknowledging my past, but also healing. It was in exploring my ancestors. This practice saved my life. It saved my mind. When I have guests come on and talk about their experiences Mental health is often a topic that comes up where people may say, no, I actually went through this. Or they might say, I recognize I may have experienced some form of trauma or stress that was debilitating and Mm -hmm. I needed something else. If I'm to reflect on the connections that you're making between mental health and your spirituality, I think in many ways how that's also depicted in the genre of horror. But Mm -hmm. I think there's something about the mysticism and things that people cannot explain or that people don't understand that all of a sudden it's horror or that it's horrific Mm -hmm. that people want to reject because we reject the things that we don't understand. Yes. There's something about Mm -hmm. these stories. There's something about the mysticism that you're connecting to. Well, then what's that pivotal moment that confirmed to you as an academician and public scholar that I'm going to promote Black women women of color as it relates specifically to the art of horror and horror narratives. It was the dismissiveness of it. It wasn't just that they said it, it was how they said it and the way they said it in the context that they said it, that it just, it pissed me off. And also that it was so juxtaposed against my actual experience. I became a horror fan because my two aunts took me to go see horror films and they had VHS, so many tapes of different horror movies and good stuff horrible stuff. You know, we just watched horror and sci-fi and genre stuff all the time. And for you to just dismiss us. It's infuriating. Early on, people realized that Black folks read some of this. Black folks did some of this. But they were always men. It was always about Black dudes. For you to say something that through my childhood experience was just so fundamentally untrue. Wow. It's like dismissing your existence. You're saying that my aunts didn't exist. So the erasure 
erasure that occurred there. Goaded you to do the work you do today. It's so many times Black folks and Black women are seen as like the voodoo man or the voodoo woman and evil. And I was just like, again, they don't understand it. But also I had a serious issue with the way our practices were being made pejorative, demonized. Right. When you don't understand something, you denigrate it and you make fun of it. But also, again, the fundamental willful misunderstanding of how we operate the concept of the living dead. Now, in mainstream horror, that's a zombie or ghosts are bad. You don't want to be possessed. And I'm saying within our tradition, we live with our dead. Absolutely, within our African diasporic traditions. We have ancestors that live in our house that we cook food for. So this isn't something that is scared. It's complex. It's a complex system. The idea that all possession is demonic. Well, we shout in church. We get ridden by spirits. We have drummings. And so, so much of my work on Black women in horror, Black women spirituality is of ignoring those previous narratives and writing and creating our own original stories that recognizes our complexity in our humanity. Be what you want to see. Act two, The Road. So, Kanitra, in my opinion, an interesting connection to your examination of the Black horrific is that you recently completed your year as an Iyabo. And so, of course, it is important to note the supernatural elements that exist in Black horror and African-descended religious traditions. How is it that you see the connections between your academic endeavors and now the spiritual practice in terms of where you are at currently? In many different ways. First of all, in terms of the academic idea, I was always fascinated that Zora Neale Hurston underwent the rituals to become a mambo, to become a practitioner of voodoo and wrote about it. I am currently reenacting that with Lukumi. I'm doing an autoethnographic project, one that includes my own spiritual practice, but also one that's looking at the influence of my family, the importance of the women in my family, that side of my family that comes from Plaquemines Parish that's so attached to Southeastern Louisiana, but also attached to practices from both West and Central Africa. And why those areas? I think a lot of times the... Congo connections are overlooked. In doing that, I get to play, but I also get to examine myself. What I'm looking at in my new project is this concept of conjure feminism. Oh, that's very exciting. So what do you mean by conjure feminism or what is a conjure woman? The concept of conjure women as being powerful women within their communities, as holding a certain spiritual knowledge, but also of recovering the knowledge that has been lost by them being demonized. Can you explain to our listeners how and why they were demonized? Because when you think about conjure women, they became, because so many of them were midwives, they became demonized by the medical system as more men became OBGYNs. So they became seen as backwards and unnecessary. And they also became simultaneously demonized by the Black church tradition. Interesting. And why do you think that was the case? To consolidate Black spirituality. Presumably under patriarchy. And then what happens is these teachings get lost and suppressed. Christy Dotson speaks of it as epistemological oppression, epistemological exclusion. So our ways of knowing were excluded and not seen as valid. And so, so much of my work, my spiritual work, my work on my family, my idea and concept of conjure women is pushing back and doing epistemological recovery. 
but also questioning why these women were seen as backwards. Why weren't these women seen as botanists? Because they worked in herbs. Why weren't these women also seen as philosophers? Oh, I like that. I'm sure they created frameworks and approaches and systems of knowing and doing. Wow. They created worlds and they knew how to push and change the world with spirituality as well as to create new worlds and happenings through their herbal practices. These women were doing world making before it was a concept. I like that. And I like the connection you made earlier around ethnobotany. Can you elaborate a little bit more for our listeners? The gardens, a holy space. And you always have to remember, Black women, we don't just work in theory. It's got to be practical too. So the garden serves our spiritual practices, but also the practicality of putting food on the table. You needed to be in your journey at this point to really kind of see how all of these elements fall into place. The presumption that I'm making about your childhood and growing up is that your connectivity to the land. When you're tending to your garden, or even if it's not specific herbs, but maybe they're just flowers, some of the matriarchs in the family um, cared for. It's a labor of love. And somehow making these connections to the land, and you can create things with your hands and with your heart and they manifest. Mm -hmm. Biblically, you can say you have to plant the seed to sow the seed and you reap its rewards. Mm -hmm. You see all that coming to play in your own spiritual practice and in your work. And for you to be able to articulate that as part of your own journey right now in this particular time and place is beautiful. They seem very disparate until you start to braid them together and weave them like a tapestry. It starts to make a sense. I'm glad our conversation's allowing you the time to be reflective. So what does this mean for you right now in this part of the journey that we're talking about? How are you reflecting in real time? Having the time to think, to grow the ability to do this autoethnographic project, to have a year as Iyawo. That's where academia becomes important. You need the time to think, to let the juices set in. And I think it's no mistake to that. Also the timeliness. And when we think about pop culture in the sense that there's been a resurgence around tenets of African religious traditions. Mm -hmm. You see Beyonce a couple of years ago performing as Oshun. Mm -hmm. And then everyone's like Googling, well, what is that? <laughs> what was she representing in front of us as part of pop culture? And then you can go on Instagram, you can go on Twitter and it just seems like everyone is a practitioner of everything, right? And it just seems like everyone's like, oh, did you hear about this root called ginger? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> of course. But they're like, oh, because that's good for digestion. I'm like, where have you been? Like, that's been around for like, that's, that's like rudimentary. That's like, that's like make your own tea 101. But everyone is into, oh, you have to brew this and boil that. And that sort of Afrobotany, mm -hmm. as I call it, people are making these connections and I don't think that it's by mistake, particularly African descended people looking to nature, looking to their ancestry, paying closer attention to folklore in their family, as well as ones that may exist about their people finding solace and hope. And on the flip side, I can see how very traditional Black churches that are rooted mm -hmm. in patriarchy are like, hold on, y'all doing that pagan stuff again. Mm -hmm. And the, the kind of tension that now mm -hmm. that people have to be perceptive about. But yeah. you also have to understand this also happened during enslavement times where yeah. slaves had to subvert and be covert in their practices 
in order to survive and thrive. And that's why mm-hmm. you're here today. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, hello, people. So interesting, because I, I talked about this in, in my Harvard talk. Angela Davis, when she talks about the blues, she says that during enslavement, what we were referred to as the Christian and the traditional African practices and all those things were much more integrated. And then post-emancipation, as we begin to model our Christian practice off of more mainstream, i.e. white traditions, as we begin to purpose lose the fact that a lot of our own Protestant practices within the church are very African in origin. We got drums, we got everything, and we've sort of willfully forgotten those connections. But then you have the Black churches really starting to lose its hold, particularly on educated Black women. But also you have where folks are no longer living in their mama's house. And that allows a freedom of exploration that we haven't really had before. But I also caution against forgetting from whence that came. Okay, interesting. And so what does this mean in terms of ancestral veneration and our connections to our ancestors through religion? We like to look at our ancestors in these boxes and not realize or recognize or appreciate their own complexities. And what do you mean by that? A lot of folks had to sacrifice for you to get up here and be able to wholly demonize the Black church. Yeah, you have to hold things in tension. And you have to realize that some of those church mothers were doing other things and you can't damn them for their Christian practice or how they operate within it. The black church can suddenly end. I always ask, so who's going to take care of big mama? How will this serve our elderly and our very youngest? the most marginalized in our population. And I take it that this question is really posed for the revolutionary folks. Because a lot of revolutions you talk about are for young folks, which is fine. But the Black church grounds our elderly and gives them communion. Do you have space for the elderly? Do you have space for the disabled? Do you have space for the very young? It's not saying that we can't end and change institutions, but what you gonna have in place? That community orientation, right? Yeah. It's okay to be on these solo explorations and to try to find connections from what I hear you are raising is this notion of interdependence, that we can do all of that, but then also be quite conscious about how is it that we are in community with one another. I owe a debt to the dead. My grandmother, my great-grandmother cleaned white folks' toilets so I could be here. I cannot forget that. I can never forget that. So then how do you then show up in community with that particular orientation and impressing upon this notion of, well, we can't forget where we came from or just how we even got here. I'm always about what knowledge ways have we lost and how will they help us into the future. I'm also a prepper. I'm also the world is going to end and I need to have 50 things of toilet paper and make sure I have all my canned goods. So when COVID became a problem, it was you. Bought up all the toilet paper. Oh, I already had all the toilet paper. <laughs> my grandmother had 12 children. She always had toilet paper and soap. But we digress. <laughs> but we do digress. I believe that my role is to continue to hold, one, what our past is, and also to spiritually ground. And so it's reminding folk when you're in these public spaces, giving different lectures and being a guest contributor to various magazines about these issues. Making sure people are fed both physically and spiritually. I will tell you this, you fed me in your Root.com Lovecraft series. (laughs) 
I enjoyed that so much. And for <laughs> listeners, I'm presuming most people saw Lovecraft because it's one of those things like, what is going on? What? Why do and, people keep talking about this? Yes. Shagath? What's a Shagath? What's going on? And for those who may have been living under a rock somewhere and miss this cultural phenomenon, Lovecraft Country was an HBO horror drama executive produced by Misha Green and Jordan Peele. And while it premiered in August, I think of 2020, what makes this show so phenomenal and significant in pop culture and in public discourse, it's really a first as a Black horror series on American television. And I just have to say, Kanicha's articles were insightful. They were intriguing. The commentary was so on point. It gave me life. So how was it to write those articles? It was awesome. I enjoyed it, but it kicked my ass every week. I was like, oh God, this is hard. (laughs) (laughs) Through the route, I got the press screener. I would get the episodes a few days ahead of time. Be able to sit and think and see what, where I was going to go. And I had an amazing editor, Maisha Kai. She really pushed me and she was like, do this. But also it was the coming together of like everything I had worked for, like a black woman horror scholar. Wow, that must have been really amazing. Amazing to see how your passions around Black women in horror, Afrofuturism, and Conjure too really can come together. I was like, I can write about this. I had written about some of the pop culture horror stuff. I'd written about Jordan Peele's work. I had written for Very Smart Brothers in Panama. Jackson was like, you know, if you ever have something. And I said, Panama, I think I can do this. And he kicked it up to the editor-in-chief. Then she was like, well, how do I know you can do this? And I was like, oh, well, I've done this, I've done this. Oh, yeah, I wrote a whole book. Oh, yeah, a whole book on Black women in horror. So I'm sure you centered the book. And then what happened? She was like, okay, let's try it. And it just took off from there. And we're so happy for the series. Now, tell us a little bit about what did it really mean to you to be able to explore the same things you covered in your book, but on a broader platform? I want to expose Black folks to the complexities of horror. And that was my whole point saying, we think horror is this old Freddy, Jason, the exorcist, but it manifests our cultural anxieties. We get to work out our cultural anxieties by the horror that happens on the screen. It's a, an emotional purging with horror because you get to see it happen to other folks, not you. And you like, oh, you know, got that anxiety taken care of. So I wanted to expose folks to these sorts of complexities. There were so many different things happening in each of these episodes particularly around the mysticism that we needed as an audience. We needed someone to help us unpack it. They knew the basics or the ideas behind certain things that would allow them to forward what they want to do with the script and the story. But it was so complex. It was so beautiful. It was so much that manifested the horror that I was writing about in my book. And it's like, yes. Give us an example. You have these women, these ancestors, and they are in your life and they're the living dead. And, you know, they take you to the ancestral plane and it's a place of healing, but also a place in which to fight. And to, you know, you have to learn these lost knowledge systems and we have to reactivate them. I think one of the cool things about the series is in the way in which Misha Green intends to upend both racial and sexual stereotypes and create like a heroic Black story and expand what you would call the Black horror canon. Misha Green is a damn genius. Folks talk about Jordan Peele like he's the second coming. 
No shade there. He's amazing. But they need to be talking about Misha Green the same way they talk about Jordan Peele. Jordan's doing movies. She's doing 10 hours of television. And it all lays together and weaves together. I think another compelling aspect of the Black horror that we see in Lovecraft Country is in the ways in which the story takes place during Jim Crow 1950s at a time when folks had the legislative backing for freedoms but didn't actually feel free. That folks were still trapped and oppressed and still struggling but then finding ways to both survive and to thrive in systems of oppression. And in many ways we're still in that same space. I mean Lovecraft Country was Jim Crow 1950s but it could be very well taking place today. Our minds are not really free. Our bodies aren't really that free as we can still see the ways in which police sanctioned violence or the lynching culture persists even to today. What I loved about it is it showed that white supremacy is there and everything else, but there were also the intimate times, the times of joy, the times of sadness, and sadness that's not just from white supremacy. Right. The real life emotions, the humanity, the Black humanity. These were complex people. We had parties. Yeah, cookouts. You know, we have to learn how to hold things in tension. Yes, both and. We go to these extremes. No one can be about it, about it all the time. Where are our places of joy? Even our enslaved ancestors had their own intimacies. They had to. That's the only way you will survive. So how do we then talk about that gentleness? How do we talk about those intimacies that occurred? Those spaces and worlds that were created? We need the language for that in ways that doesn't sugarcoat it, but also acknowledges the power of it. In terms of your journey, what lessons have you learned along the way? Well, one thing I've learned and I continue learn is ain't nothing new under the sun. Folks think they're doing new hot shit. Nah, they was doing that 100 years ago. Itavia Butler said there's nothing new under the sun, but we can find new suns. That's where the new suns book series comes from. I think now I've reached a certain acclaim as an academic, but in starting out, I felt like such a failure. I can't get this fellowship. Like, what's wrong with me? I turned it into like, what was it about me that was preventing me from doing it? Because I can be incredibly hard on myself. Give us an example. When I was on the tenure track, I almost didn't get tenure because they didn't take what I was doing seriously. I was doing Black women in horror. And still, that would be considered too niche and not scholarly and rigorous enough. It's cute and hot now. Folks just thought I was crazy and doing something that wasn't worthy of study. People didn't get me for such a long time. And so I had to keep my own company. And then I had to find a crew. And how'd you find your crew? One of my students, one of my grad students had discovered this thing called ethnogothic. And she was like, yeah, this guy, John Jennings is doing it. I reached out to John. We started talking about horror. We started talking about all this stuff. And John was like, yeah, you coming to Astro Blackness too. And I got there and I found my people. And who are those people? Black folks talking about and doing genre and other weird shit. I wasn't the odd man out. I was actually onto something. There were other people doing this. So I met Stacey Robinson. I met Nalo Hopkinson, uh, N.K. Jemison, and Nettie Okorafor before they blew up because we were all working in our little silos being told that this stuff was never going to serve us or do anything for us. We were being too political, too much Black feminism, all of these things. And fast forward, it's now all the rage. Afrofuturism just got sexy. And then where does the Beyonce Lemonade Reader fall into all of this? 
Beyonce walked into my wheelhouse with Lemonade because I had just written a book about it. I was with Camila Martin and we were just on Facebook Messenger like, girl, we got to write about this. What are we going to do? So and so and so and so. I think in many ways, your journey toward finding your community is what helped to solidify and provide you the lessons in order to succeed today. And I think of having that faith in what you do, of knowing, but also of it being so much the essence of who I am. It connects me to my family. It connects me to my dad. That's about community and finding your place. And if you're unable to enter in environments, it's you creating the environment so that you can take up space and be big in it. Also with the collective learning that other folks' triumphs are also your triumph. You know, I've been working on this Conjure Feminism project for a couple of years now. So I haven't had a monograph come out. I joined together with Susanna. We got the book series. Joined together with Camila. We got the Lemonade Reader out. You can work together on things or some things can just come out with their name on it. But you know what? You're still winning. And so there has to be an unselfishness there. I think another thing that is necessary is we're a mixed group, but folks ain't messing around and causing confusion. So there's a respect for each other. There's a friendship and intimacy in that way. But there are also lines in terms of intimacy to keep things above board. Right, because then it's about being transparent and being collaborative because there's no space for the competition and the insecurity that comes about and the jealousy and the secretiveness. Mm -hmm. You know, we have that in so many other spaces that we traverse, but to be able to create a community where there are respectful parameters, but then it's also imbued with love and patience and kindness. Get involved. Three, where we land. So this is the part of the show that I'm all for. Plug your work. Please tell the audience what's your latest project. You know, talk maybe a little bit more about the book project and then maybe some other things that you have in the pipeline that people can look forward to checking out. My second monograph on Conjure Feminism. It's what I spent and did with my Harvard project. It's why I'm doing the autoethnographic project and looking at the maternal side of my family. I'm just really interested in this idea of putting conjure women forth as philosophers and how Black women create and pass on these ways of knowing, particularly within regards to spirituality and healing. The other thing I'm working on, which I'm very excited about, is I'm working on a graphic novel. I'm adapting one of N.K. Jemison's short stories called Red Dirt Witch, which is where a conjure woman from Alabama meet an elf, elven magic, and they like battle it out over each other. I'm so excited. I love it. I'm, you know, stretching my creative muscles that I haven't really used or at least publicly for a while. I'm working with Ashley A. Woods. It's going to come out on Abrams Comics. I'm excited about being able to have the opportunity to play, to explore. Every single thing that I've done is true to me. I'm not trying to be something I'm not. You're just open to the possibilities. As a public scholar, you have to play and dabble and stretch and expand. Your journey, as you've outlined it for us today, encompasses all of that. Then also there's a lot of free flowing. I see it manifest easily in the things (laughs) that you're doing in your latest project. I need to have pieces that my mama and my dad can read and understand. And that's why I appreciate your work because it's smart and accessible. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's been a lovely, lovely conversation. I've enjoyed myself immensely. Thank you for having me. There you have it. 
The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace.